everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of Superman and Batman, a show featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, and I want to thank you very much for joining me. After spending several of the last few episodes in various spots of the Silver Age, this episode we are back in the 1980s portion of the Bronze Age for a look at a comic that comes from the same time period and even has the same writer as what is, I think, the story that has been the most popcorn-munching fun of all the stories we've looked at on the show to date. Unfortunately, this one doesn't quite live up to the bar set there, but it's... well, it's a story. (laughs) And it's also a bit of a rarity with the creators involved, but I will get into that shortly. This episode, we are looking at World's Finest Comics number 277. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the issue was released on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1981. It's got a March 1982 cover date and 48 pages for the price of one whole dollar. Our cover is by George Perez and Robert Smith, not the late singer from The Cure, And it's one of only four covers that Perez did for World's Finest Comics. And unfortunately, in my opinion, it's the weakest of the four. The cover has a circle in the center where we get our main image of Superman and Batman busting into the laboratory of a crazed scientist. And that part of the cover is great. Unfortunately, the cover as a whole suffers from what's around the circle, where Perez drew figures of the four other features in the title. Um, As I talked about in a couple previous episodes, the Dollar Comics era stuffed a bunch of other uh, features in the back of the book for a a giant, you know, uh, 80 page or however however many pages this had at that time uh, magazine. So we've got around around the outside, we've got Zaytana and Green Arrow and Hawkman and Captain Marvel. And you know, I, I understand the desire to plug other the other features in the book. I mean, after all, the cover price is $1, which, which may sound cheap to our standards today, but it was nearly twice the average price of the other books on the stands at the time. And I understand wanting to show readers, you know, what they were getting for their buck. But here, it, it just doesn't work very well. But still, for what it's worth, you know, the action in the center and all four figures around the perimeter, they all look great, and I I do mean really great. Had the center image been the cover, I'd have absolutely no qualms, because it really is a a dynamic action scene. But turning inside, credits for the Superman and Batman story are Carrie Burkett writer, Don Heck and Romeo Tangal artists, Ben Oda letterer, Gene D'Angelo, colorist, and Mike W. Barr, editor. And just for a few notes on the creators, keen-eared listeners will remember that Carrie Burkett was the writer of War in the Streets from World's Finest Comics number 280, which we looked at all the way back in episode 2. And as I said at the top of the show, still one of the most fun, most action-fun stories we've had on the show to this point. Our penciler is Don Heck, and this is probably the only time that we'll have a Don Heck penciled story on the show, because this is the only Superman and Batman story he penciled in World's Finest Comics. While Heck worked on a lot of stories and characters throughout his very long career, 
Superman and Batman team-ups were unfortunately not among those. And for those who have a broader knowledge of DC history, you know, just for time frame, Heck did this um, around the time he started on his run on Justice League of America, and about a year before his time on Wonder Woman. Uh, but as for the editor, <laughs> in the last four years of World's Finest Comics, the book went through seven different editors. Mike W. Barr was one of them, editing the book for a whole five issues, and this was the second of those five issues. Now, why the book went through so many editors in its waning years, I don't know, but I, su- I suspect that it's at least part of the reason uh, that those years aren't as regarded as the Silver Age and, and the early Bronze Age stuff, because when you don't have a consistent voice on the book, you're likely to have trouble. But anyway, also of note is that Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are credited for the creation of Superman in this issue. And I thought at first that it was the uh, first issue of World's Finest Comics we'd encountered on the show with that credit. But I went back and looked, and they were actually credited in in issue 281 as well. Again, episode 2. Strangely, the credit was not included in issues 299 or 301, even even though those came out after this issue, obviously. Uh, But back into this issue, though, what I found especially weird about the credit is that while Superman's creators are credited, there's no such notation by Batman's logo. I don't know why that is, probably just an oversight, but notable nonetheless. To get into our 14-page story, though, it's titled Beasts of Plague, which is a very, uh, kind of a horror-feeling, you know, title. Unfortunately, the story doesn't quite match up to the the promise of the title, but anyway. Midnight in Gotham City, and as two furtive figures move warily through a shadowed alleyway, a pair of sharp eyes peer through the slits of a unique mask, watching their every move. And that pair of eyes belongs to none other than Batman, who watches the movements of two recently escaped cons, Squirrel Randolph, and a villain so lame he isn't even given a name. Acting on a tip that Squirrel and No Name were smuggling goods out of Gotham and into Metropolis, Batman tracked them down. Seeing the thugs get into a cargo truck, Batman leaps into action and takes out the crooks in very short order. Wanting to find out what they were smuggling, Batman opens up the back door of the truck and discovers it's full of cats and dogs, which just leaves Batman with more questions. The next day, Perry White is busy looking for a reporter by the name of Ed Anders who was on the trail of a big story, but hasn't been heard from since the day before. And it's a good thing Clark Kent was there to hear Perry's tirade, because later on, as Superman is on patrol, he spots Anders in an alley, looking dazed and confused. Thinking a friendly face might reassure him, Superman switches back to the guise of Clark Kent and greets his colleague. Anders hysterically tells Clark to stay back, then mutters something about a virus before dying in Clark's arms. Clark uses his x-ray vision on Anders' body and realizes he's infected with a deadly bacteria unlike any seen before. He then deposits Anders' body at Star Labs before taking a dip into the sun to purify himself of any remnants of the bacteria that he might have picked up. Meanwhile, Lois also is investigating Anders' disappearance when the trail leads her to an abandoned waterfront warehouse. At midnight, 
alone. And I think we can all see where this is going, right folks? So while Lois is getting tied to a chair, we cut to Gotham City, where Superman appeals for Batman's help with Anders death. The two fly back to Metropolis, and Batman puts on a full body condom and proceeds to get all CSI on Anders' body looking for clues. Once finished, he turns to Superman with a stern face and says, It looks like Anders met his deadline. Batman analyzes the clues found on Anders' body and reveals that he must have recently been at a loading dock or a warehouse, and that his clothes are covered with pet hair from more than 30 breeds of dogs and cats. Meanwhile, at the abandoned waterfront warehouse, Lois is confronted by a scientist. Uh, Oh, excuse me. Lois is confronted by an evil scientist. A scientist so evil, in fact, that he's not given a name either. Still, being evil didn't reduce his ability to monologue, and the scientist goes on for more than a page and a half, revealing his entire plan, as villains are often wont to do. He talks about how he's created a bacteria so deadly it will kill a man within an hour. He plans to use animals, who for some reason are immune to the bacteria, as carriers to spread the disease in order to thin the human population, which he feels has grown too large. He's using Metropolis as a testing ground, but plans to carry out his evil crusade throughout the world. Meanwhile, Superman and Batman interview Squirrel Randolph, believing his animal smuggling is connected with the pet hair on Andrew's clothing. After a little... let's just say persuasive discourse... The world's finest arrive at the Metropolis warehouse that Squirrel was using as a delivery point. With his x-ray vision, Superman sees Lois inside and goes to save her, while Batman swings in through a window, kicking two thugs right in the face. Not wanting to be defeated, the evil scientist releases the hounds, literally by allowing the infected animals out of their cages. Knowing he can't let them into the population, Superman uses a little super speed to construct a new pen out of some nearby packing crates. Meanwhile, Batman goes after Evil Von Evilstein, but has to stop when the scientist threatens to inject Lois with the bacteria. The Dark Knight stalls the madman long enough to hit him with a batarang and cause the scientist to stumble backwards into the bacteria's incubator. Thankfully, Superman speeds in just in time to inhale the deadly toxins and then flies off to blow them into the sun and once again burn any traces from his costume. Some time has passed. Star Labs researchers are unable to treat Evil Von Evilstein due to knowing so little about the bacteria, but our heroes take solace in the fact that the threat has ended and that Lois got a good scoop. Though Lois says that while she might be getting the story, the real credit goes to Ed Anders. The end. Am I the only one who felt as if this story, as if this was a story that would have fit perfectly into the Golden Age? 
either in a comic story from you know either character or on the Superman radio show. I mean, setting aside the fact that the two characters didn't team up in those early days, this is exactly the kind of story that was told in both characters' books in their earliest years. While I kind of want Superman or Batman stories from this era to be a bit bigger, or at least have them facing a, a threat that's bigger in scope, looking at the story as a throwback to the, t- to the style of stories and the kind of menaces that they each took on in their solo stories when they were starting out, I really like this. And I'm going to break down the, the various traits of the story that I found to be, you know, very, very Golden Age-esque. First, names, or, or rather, lack of names. Neither Squirrel's, uh, Squirrel's accomplice or the main scientist villain have names, which is something that wasn't at all uncommon in Jerry Siegel-written stories. And two, a scientist infecting dogs and cats in order to spread a bacteria that will wipe out humanity is very... Well, I was going to say it was complicated, but it's, it's really not from a story perspective. But it is a very complicated way to go about achieving the end that you're trying to achieve. But in the Golden Age, villains did that kind of thing all the time. Three words. Cab, protective, league. Um, three, the bad guy dies at the end. And moreover, it could be debated as to whether or not it's Batman's fault, given that Batman threw the Batarang that knocked him into the uh, deadly incubator. Four, going back to the beginning of the story, you know, things begin with Batman out on patrol, which is a common beginning for Batman stories from throughout the years. For Superman's part, his story begins when Perry White gets things rolling by bringing up the missing reporter. And both were very common ways to begin each character's respective stories in the Golden Age. In fact, for the first several years of Superman's existence, virtually the only use of the editor, you know, be it George Taylor as it originally was or Perry White later, was as a catalyst to get that issue or or that particular arc in the radio series going. Uh, But speaking of Ed Anders, number five... Well, Ed Anders. <laughs> we have a never-before-heard-of, long-time friend and co-worker brought up just long enough to die. Of all the things I've mentioned, that one might not be as common as the others, but it happened more often than you might think in Superman stories, since you know basically all of those stories would focus on what often seemed like the, the, the Daily Planet's only two reporters in Clark and Lois. And last but not least, number six, Lois Lane, in trouble by doing something stupid like going to an abandoned warehouse alone at midnight, only to get taken as a hostage. She might not be portrayed as, you know, completely and utterly insane as in the Golden Age, and actually she's very cordial to Clark here, but the rest is very stereotypical Golden Age Lois Lane. So, while this might not look or read like a Golden Age story, the premise of the story certainly feels like one. And it's like this story, with different art and maybe a little tweaking on the script, would have been right at home in a 1940 issue of either Action Comics or Detective Comics. Again, with the caveat that the characters weren't actually teaming up there. 
And you can imagine this playing well on the radio, too, since the cast is pretty limited, um, aside from what would be the series regulars. Because aside from Ed Anders and the evil scientist, there are no uh, people in the script that have any dialogue. Um, so yeah, well, I take that back. Squirrel Randolph, 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 Squirrel, Squirrel Randolph's accomplice does say "ugh" when Batman conks him in the head with a batarang. So there's that. But you know, anybody on the cast could do an "ugh," or they could even use this one if they want to travel back in time. And uh, th- there's really no sound effects that would be needed either that would be outside what the sound crew was accustomed to producing, except for maybe the trips to the sun, which would probably just be presented as, you know, crackling fire anyway. Uh, and the trips to the sun is, is the one thing presented to us in the story that wasn't done in the Golden Age. So I, I imagine if somehow the story made its way back through time and was produced as a radio show, uh, that part would be cut out anyway because that just didn't happen back then. But anyway, um, looking at it as a throwback story, I, I really did enjoy this one a lot. Again, I'm not sure if that's what Carrie Burkett, uh, the writer, intended, but 30 years later, I'm not really sure if the writer's intentions matter much anyway, as long as, you know, someone is enjoying the story, you know? Um, Art-wise, it's it's really a shame that Don Heck didn't do more Superman and Batman stories in World's Finest Comics, because this one, I, I really enjoyed the art on it. Superman and Batman both look excellent for this era. Lois and Perry, and maybe even Commissioner Gordon, who gets a one-panel cameo in the middle of the story, they all look a tad off-model, but I think with more work on the characters, Heck would have nailed them eventually. Uh, the action is dynamic. There's a great panel uh, part of the way through the story, I guess on page four, when Superman is flying through the air and he spots Anders in the alley. And then he lands and changes back to Clark Kent. So it's kind of the reverse of the typical Clark to Superman transition. And then later on, we have uh, some great action panels of Batman, too. So, overall, you know, a pretty fun story all around. And I'm glad, I'm really glad I took some time to think about this one before I started doing my notes. Because, originally, I was going to be pretty harsh on it. But, you know, it, it just didn't do much for me on the first read. But, once I looked at it from a, from the more of the, as I said, the, the perspective of a, of a uh, throwback tale... Like I said, I like this one a whole lot. So right now we're going to take a break, go to a promo, probably two promos, because that's what I do on the show here, and then we'll be be back for what else was on the stands and what else was in this issue. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics. And the video games, too. It's like they're just stories, and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them! Okay, Star Wars fans, relax. Here, have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. 
In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are. So come along for The Star Wars Saga Cast at thestarwarssagacast.com. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin, for the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Like is the case with so many Bronze Age issues of World's Finest Comics, nothing from this issue has ever been reprinted. Since this is from the Dollar Comics era of the title, though, we've got lots of other features. First up is an eight-page Green Arrow story titled... Well, there is no title. But it's by Mike... But it's by Mike W. Barr, Trevor Von Eden, and Rodan Rodriguez. Next up is an eight-page Zaytana story by Paul Kupperberg and Dan Spiegel, and that's titled Doppelganger, and it has Zaytana fighting her dark duplicate. And it's interesting because Zaytana's in the costume that she was wearing at this time, which is the the navy blue and white jumper with the puffy sleeves and the thigh-high boots, but her duplicate is wearing the more traditional Zaytana costume with the top hat, tails, and fishnets. So it's interesting seeing those two... uh, pitted against one another, I guess you might say. But after that, there's an eight-page Hawkman story by Bob Rosakis, Alex Saviuk, and Rodan Rodriguez, titled, I Have My Wings and I Must Fly. And our heroes, Superman and Batman, make an appearance at the very tail end of that story. And it actually ties directly into the Superman and Batman team-up from issue number 278. So look for more on this particular story, whenever that issue comes up. And finally, there's a 10-page Captain Marvel Jr. story, which is weird because it's Captain Marvel... Well, just a regular Captain Marvel on the cover, but the story is a Captain Marvel Jr. story. But that's titled The Menace of the Moon Tree. And that story is by E. Nelson Bridwell, Don Newton, and Frank Chiaramonte. The only ad in the book is for a new title that we'll be talking about in just a minute when we look at the uh, the other stuff on the stands. The From the World's Finest Fans letters page talks about issue number 272, 
which we haven't covered. So we move on to the last thing in the book, which is the back cover, the Daily Planet page. This month's page talks mostly about some anniversary issues and other big issues coming up. Um, again, most of which we'll cover in the Elsewhere portion momentarily. But there's also a uh, DC profile number 89. And it's hard to believe that they did 89 of these, uh, or more really, because I doubt this was the last one. But this one is on artist Gene Colan. And it talks about his career and how he got into, into uh, drawing comics, you know, that kind of thing. When this was published, Colin had been working for DC for only about six months. Uh, before that, Gene Colin was a Marvel artist. He'd done some romance and Western books for DC in the 1950s and 60s, but 90% of his work, uh, dating all the way back to the beginning of his career in the late 1940s, was for Marvel Comics. So, Colin coming to DC was a big deal. So it's it's really nice to see him uh, getting some attention. Uh, and really, not just because it was a big deal, but because I think I think Colin is one of those artists that's maybe not given as much attention as he really deserves. Um, but the final thing on the page is a gag strip by the one and only Fred Hembeck, and I'll be sure to scan this and put it in the show notes. I'm pretty sure it's the first. Hembeck gag strip that we've come across in the show, and I do loves me some friend Fred Hembeck. But as much as I'd love to keep talking about Fred Hembeck, now it's time for something else that I love, and that's to take a trip in the time machine at Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com for a look at what else was on the stands. First up is Best of DC Digest number 22, which is a Christmas edition. Superman's on the cover, but only appears in the reprint of The Man Who Murdered Santa Claus, originally from Justice League of America number 110. Batman is more represented, though, with him or Robin appearing in five of the book's seven stories. Interestingly, this book also contains a Michael Fleischer, Jack Kirby, Sandman story that I don't think has ever been reprinted. So that's interesting because all the other Kirby Sandman stuff was reprinted in the Kirby uh, Omnibus hardcovers a few years ago. So why they let this one out, I don't know. But it's especially interesting because these digests were almost always reprints. Um, original content that hadn't first appeared elsewhere was a definite rarity. Rob Kelly over at the Aquaman Shrine and part of the Fire and Water podcast is a big fan of these digests. So, Rob, if you're listening, write in and let me know if you know the story behind why uh, this particular story, this original story, was included here in the digest when it hadn't appeared elsewhere. Um, But Kirby hadn't been at DC for several years at this point, so maybe it was an inventory story or maybe it was meant for something else and, you know, just got stuck in a drawer and forgotten about. Uh, but moving on, Superman teams up with a legion of superheroes to take on Mongol in DC Comics Presents number 43. And that's notable for being the first Mongol appearance not involving Len Wein or Jim Starlin, who co-created the character. I mentioned earlier about a number of anniversary issues this month, and next up is the first of those with Justice League of America number 200 by Jerry Conway and an all-star lineup of artists all wrapped up in a great cover by George Perez. 
Batman number 345 and Detective Comics number 512, which is a little farther down the list, both with a cover and interior art by Gene Colan, reintroduced the Golden Age villain Dr. Death. Superman battles the Parasite in the Christmas-themed Superman number 369, which has a great Rich, uh, Rich Buckler cover of the Parasite punching Superman into a Christmas tree. Then we've got another anniversary issue with Green Lantern number 150, which ultimately leads to a bit of a status quo change as Hal Jordan is exiled from Earth by the Guardians, um, a condition that lasts actually until Len Wein comes on with issue number 172. And I've not read most of the issues from here until Wein begins. Uh, I've got most of them. I, I think I'm missing an issue or two Maybe just one issue. Uh, but anyway, by most accounts, it's not that good of a stretch of issues. So I've not been real motivated to finish the run, but it's something I definitely want to do someday. Uh, but the third issue of the Phantom Zone miniseries also came out this month. And this was a series by Steve Gerber and the aforementioned Gene Colan. And if you want to hear all about this very awesome miniseries, Go check out the episodes of Superman in the Bronze Age, where Charlie Niemeyer covered it. Um, he did a string of episodes looking at just this series, and it's definitely worth checking out, uh, both the series and the podcast. Uh, but the last thing I see that's worth mentioning is a brand new series, Captain Carrot and His Amazing Zoo Crew, number one, complete with guest appearance by Superman. Because unlike today... When you had a new hero, they were welcomed into the fold by the Man of Steel, not Batman. Grumble, grumble, grouse, grouse, grumble, grumble. But that's it. As always, I want to thank you all very much for listening. I want to say that I really hope you're enjoying the show. There are uh, 25 episodes under my belt now. Sure, this is episode 22, but with the specials in the mailbag, it's 25. And I'm having an absolute blast with the show. I've been looking at the calendar, and I've mapped out a loose plan of episodes through the end of the year. Um, If everything goes to plan, there will be lots of World's Finest Comics, a few guests coming in to chat, and even some episodes looking at non-World's Finest Comics, Superman and Batman team-ups, particularly some from post-1986. So there's lots of stuff to look forward to, and I really hope that you'll be along for the ride. I'll be doing another feedback episode at the end of July, so be sure to write in, michael at greatcrypton.com, and give me your thoughts and comments on the show or, you know, just any of the stories I've covered. That's it for me and this episode, though. Once more, thank you very much for joining me, and I will talk to you all next time. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. 
Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. I went there. The closing song for this episode was the <sighs> Grammy Award winning Who Let the Dogs Out by the Baja Men from their 2000 album of the same name. If you like this song, I'm very, very sorry. Still, even if you don't like the song, maybe you would like to buy it or the original version by Anselm Douglas. If so, the best way to do that is by visiting 2TrueFreaks.com. Click on the banner in the upper left corner of the site and be redirected to Amazon.com. Buy an MP3, physical copy of the song, or maybe some pet treats, and 2 True Freaks will get a little kickback on every purchase. So not only will you be getting... music? But you'll be helping out some of the hardest working folks in podcasting. And best of all, it won't cost you anything extra.